Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It is no secret that indigenous Americans deal with many challenges as the result of colonization. But the depths of some of the disparities American Indians live with every day in the United States may surprise you. Here's just one statistic. According to the North Dakota Department of Health, the average age of death in the decade between 2009 and 2019 for American Indians was 56.8 years. In contrast, the average age of death for the white population was just over 77 years. As a medical doctor, Dr. Donald Warren has dedicated his life to healing people. He's also worked hard to raise awareness about the enduring health challenges faced by American Indians and to empower other indigenous people to make a difference in the fields of medicine and public health. He created the first indigenous health-focused Master of Public Health and Ph.D. programs in the United States or Canada at the University of North Dakota, and he is now co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health. He is a member of the Oglala Lakota tribe from Pine Ridge, South Dakota, and tomorrow... At noon, he'll be delivering the Martin Luther King Jr. Distinguished Lecture as part of the 2023 Human Rights Week celebration at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. And he is with me now. Hello, Dr. Warren. Hello. Very good to be with you. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. And let's talk about your upbringing. You grew up in a very small town on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Yeah, I'm originally from Kyle, South Dakota, on the Pine Ridge Reservation, and it it is a small town. We have a three-way stop sign. That's a, the only traffic uh, um, sign, or, or, or uh, we don't even have traffic lights. It's a very small community, <laughs> but I think probably very similar to many of the communities in Iowa. So tell me where the the idea and the dream of becoming a medical doctor started for you. Well, I was very fortunate to grow up in a family with a lot of traditional healers and medicine men in the traditional Lakota way of healing. So I grew up exposed to traditional cultural-based medicine. And in addition, my mom is a nurse. She's 83 years old and still working, actually. Uh, She works for South Dakota State University, working as an elder nurse mentor to nursing students. So I was exposed to uh, medicine and healthcare from a traditional cultural perspective from childhood, but also uh, from my mom's perspective as a nurse. So I was kind of immersed in it uh, just starting in childhood. Well, and it feels like there was really a family legacy that maybe you were even pressured a little bit to carry on, uh, even down to your name, right? Yeah, and actually, I don't really feel like there was a, at least I didn't feel a sense of pressure to go toward medicine and healthcare, but it felt very natural because of uh, my upbringing. And yes, my Lakota name is Prejuta Wichasha, which means medicine man. So I'm not a formally trained medicine man, but I am a a family physician and I do have uh, some training in traditional medicine, certainly participate in our ceremonies. But I was named uh, Medicine Man after my grandfather. My mom's father, Louis Staber, his Lakota name was also Prejuta Wichasha. So uh, when I was uh, a young man, uh, we had a naming ceremony, and my family decided to give me his Lakota name in a traditional ceremony. 
When you started to think about becoming a medical doctor and pursuing that education, you talked to your uncles about it, and then they are traditional healers. Tell me about what you learned from them. So in my um, upbringing, um, we, we actually did move to Arizona when I was in grade school, but I would spend my summers back in Pine Ridge with my family. And that, of course, it's in the summertime when we have most of our ceremonies because of, uh, you know, the, the the weather being so challenging this time of year. Yeah. But in the summers, we have uh, Sundance and other related ceremonies. So I was really deeply immersed in that from a very young age. And it wasn't necessarily like a formal apprenticeship, but I was learning a lot of traditional medicine and ceremony from my family, particularly my uncles. And in that process, I was... Uh, going toward that route and really thinking about uh, dedicating my work to traditional medicine and ceremony. And then I was in, uh, I was in undergraduate school actually at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona, and I was doing well in school. And there was a pre-med advisor who was trying to diversify the pre-med club at ASU. And he had approached me because I was doing well in some science classes that I had taken. And he asked if I had ever considered becoming a pre-med. And actually, my first question, rather naively, was, are there any American Indian physicians? Because I actually had never met one. So uh, we were able to coordinate an opportunity for me to meet an American Indian physician. And that was really life-changing for me, because then it felt certainly possible that I could become a doctor. So in that process, I also talked to my uncles. And I was kind of concerned that they would be disappointed or uh, not be encouraging about going that route because historically, I think that modern medicine has not been respectful of traditional cultural-based medicine. And I'd heard, you know, really terrible stories about the disrespect that some of our traditional healers have faced. And actually, the opposite occurred. They were not discouraging; they were very encouraging. And one of my uncles, in particular, he's passed on, but his name was Ray Takeswerbonnet, and he said. I think this is a good idea, but if you go into medicine, never forget where you come from and never forget what your responsibilities are as a Lakota man. And our, those responsibilities include making sure that our work is dedicated to improving the lives of people in our communities. It's not about us as individuals. It's about the people. And of course, never forgetting where I'm from and, and recognizing that even though we have wonderful academic institutions and a lot of personal benefits from going into health professions like medicine, but there are still populations out there that are suffering tremendously from a lack of access to basic services. That sounds like a, a lot on your so shoulders going to medical school. I, I know that everybody who enters medical school has a lot going on, but you were carrying with you this legacy and, and a mission did you have a hard time with that when you were in school? You, there weren't a lot of other Indigenous students or Indigenous role models. Did you feel like you were alone in this? You know, I was actually fortunate in my class at uh, Stanford. So I went to Stanford for medical school. But it just happened to be there were two other American Indian students in my uh, incoming class. So there are three of us which doesn't sound like a lot, but for that time in history and at a school like uh, uh, Stanford School of Medicine, 
uh, that actually was a significant number. So I did have some some uh, close friends and colleagues in school, but it was very challenging because I'd never lived in a place like Palo Alto, California. Uh, and it was the first time I heard the term old money. I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there were legacies and people who whose parents or other relatives had gone to Stanford for medical school or for other training. And of course, I had no relatives who had, had ever gone there. Um, so when I was there, I think part of the challenge was just to be immersed in a very different culture, not just the culture of medicine and medical school, but Palo Alto, California being vastly different than what I had become accustomed to in either South Dakota or Arizona. So there were some challenges just uh, trying to adapt to a different way of living and a different way of thinking and a different way of being. But I think it was in the long run very good for me to see these uh, uh, the, the diversity and variety of experiences that people have. And it really did open my eyes to recognize that the vast majority of people who are going into medical training have no idea the real challenges that are being faced by indigenous populations. I want to spend more time exploring those challenges in, in just a few minutes, but I want to ask right now a little bit about your personal philosophy and personal approach as a doctor, because again, you're bringing forward this legacy of traditional healing, and you have a world-class education in modern medicine. As a doctor, how do you integrate that? Well, it was it's interesting. When I was a full-time clinician, um, I would uh, utilize traditional medicine uh, from a, a cultural perspective. But I also, after my family medicine residency, did a fellowship in complementary and alternative medicine in Arizona. So I had formal training in medical acupuncture, homeopathy, and botanical medicine. So I ran an integrative medicine clinic when I was working for one of the tribes in Arizona as a primary care doctor. And it was really a wonderful experience. And quite often I would be asked, how do you integrate traditional medicine into your modern practice? And the answer was, I don't. I integrate modern medicine into a traditional practice because traditional medicine is much more holistic and much more comprehensive. So we address physical health, but also spiritual, mental, and emotional health. Whereas in modern medicine, another word for a doctor is physician. So we're saying, right up front that we deal primarily in the physical arena. Physician and physical have the same Latin root physic, which means the natural sciences. So in many ways, the uh, traditional cultural approach to holistic healing is much more comprehensive. And I would view modern medicine as one tool in a large toolbox to address health challenges that our patients were facing. And it really should be driven by the patient's preferences in terms of focusing just on modern allopathic medicine or integrating a more holistic perspective. And most of my patients really wanted a holistic approach to their healing process. You, in working with a specific tribe, of course, every tribal nation is different. And and this was not, you were working with a tribe that was not the, the tribe that you are part of and that you grew up with. Did you have to learn more about local culture and traditions and healing methods to be able to effectively treat the people there. I did. And I was really fortunate to uh, get to know some of the, the traditional healers in that community. 
And I also had the advantage when I was um, an undergraduate for one of my capstone projects, I did a, a diabetes um, study with uh, the, this particular tribe. And then when I was in medical school, I did a research rotation back with the same community. So I had some connectivity to community leaders um, during that time frame. And also my mom was a public health nurse in that same community in Arizona. So I'd actually had quite a few connections to that community before I started working there as a primary care doctor. And we're going to have to take a a short pause. I want to hear more about this in just a moment. I'm talking with Dr. Donald Warren. He is the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health. He is a member of the Oglala Lakota tribe from Pine Ridge, South Dakota. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, I am talking with Dr. Donald Warren. He has dedicated his life to healing people. He's also worked hard to raise awareness about the enduring health challenges faced by American Indians. He has also done a great deal to empower other indigenous people to make a difference in the fields of medicine and public health. He created the first indigenous health focused Master of Public Health and PhD programs in the United States or Canada at the University of North Dakota. He's now the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health. He is in Iowa this week. Tomorrow at noon, he'll be delivering the Martin Luther King Jr. Distinguished Lecture as part of the 2023 Human Rights Week celebration at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. And Dr. Warren, just before the break, we were talking about the work that you did as a clinician with the the Gila River community in Arizona and your connections to that community, this is not your traditional background, but what you were able to learn from that community that, that helped you to treat individuals that were part of that community. And, and I had to interrupt you, but please continue. Yes, absolutely. And, and again, I was very fortunate to have had some connectivity to that community Uh, prior to going there to work as a primary care doctor. But I was very fortunate to get to know and work with several of the local traditional healers. And one of them in particular, unfortunately, he's passed on since that time, but his name was Bennett Lyons. And he was just a a wonderful traditional healer. And uh, I would work with this group of traditional healers kind of as a, a specialty group that I would refer to. So much in the same way if I had a patient who needed a cardiologist for heart disease or a nephrologist for kidney disease, I would refer to the local traditional healers for those uh, patients who needed more of a holistic, perhaps spiritually based or ceremony based type of intervention to address their holistic health. And it was really a wonderful experience to be able to blend uh, modern allopathic medicine with traditional culturally based medicine and various forms of complementary and alternative medicine. So it really was a genuine integrative approach that was culturally relevant. And I really feel like our, our patients got a lot out of that. And, you know, one, just as a side note, what I would observe kind of empirically 
and I never set this up as a study. I kind of wish it was in some ways to show this. But what, what I found is that when we were addressing things like uh, diabetes from a more holistic perspective, we saw better outcomes. And I think that when we have a disease like type 2 diabetes, in which there's all kinds of other emotional and uh, stressful implications of the disease, that if we're merely prescribing medications, we're not addressing the issue from the patient's perspective. And the patient will quite often have a lot of fear about the diagnosis. They'll also have a lot of guilt for, for having type 2 diabetes. And uh, they're worried about the future. And if all we're doing is prescribing medicines to address blood sugar, we're not really addressing those other root causes of stress hormones and, and other challenges that make it difficult to manage the disease. So what I found is a holistic approach was also better medicine. You've also been quoted a number of times saying, uh, as a doctor, when you've worked with one tribe, you have worked with one tribe, uh, emphasizing that there are cultural differences among all of the tribal nations in the United States. So even in focusing on indigenous health, it is not a monolith. Exactly. There's a lot of diversity. And that's what's exciting about the field of indigenous health. And what I'm hoping to, to see is that in the academic sector, we recognize indigenous health as an academic discipline, because there are, uh, there's a lot of diversity and a lot of cultural differences. But there are some commonalities in terms of themes that lead to health disparities and health challenges. So, for example, colonization, uh, history of things like forced boarding school or residential school participation and historical trauma leads to a very similar pattern of health challenges. So if we look at indigenous populations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and in the Pacific Islands, we tend to see a very similar pattern of health disparities with higher rates of things like type 2 diabetes, as well as mental health um, challenges related to uh, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, and unfortunately, addiction and suicide. In the, the field of public health, of course, you you are taking a more holistic approach. You've mentioned uh, type 2 diabetes several times, and, and we know that that is a very serious health problem for many indigenous people in the United States, and indigenous people suffer from type 2 diabetes at a significantly higher rate than uh, people, the, the rest of the population in the United States. I, I also watched one of the speeches that you gave, and, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about this, is it's it's not only so much more prevalent in indigenous communities, but then so much more likely to lead to an early death in those communities as well, amplifying the effect of, of this disease, right? Yes, absolutely. So if you, if you think about this, if you grow up in a community that's been devastated by type 2 diabetes and you hear that you are being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, it triggers all kinds of association. So people grow up watching their grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, siblings, in some cases even children, have type 2 diabetes. And then they go through things like amputations, blindness, kidney failure and dialysis, um, and all kinds of other challenges, including heart disease and stroke. So when people hear the word diabetes, it carries with it all kinds of emotional and mental stressful uh, considerations. 
So again, if we're just focused on blood sugar, we're not going to address the issue from the patient's perspective. And when I was working, you know, in, in a couple of the communities in Arizona, I had probably at least a dozen patients over the years tell me I don't have diabetes yet. Not that they don't have diabetes, but they don't have it yet. Mm -hmm. So they're planning on getting diabetes. They just don't happen to be diagnosed yet. So if someone believes that they're going to get diabetes, that has a huge impact on health-related behavior. And this is something that's not really taught in medical school. At least it wasn't when I went to medical school, is that we really have to understand what does the patient believe? What are their thoughts and attitudes around health, wellness, and disease? And we don't have a good way of measuring that or understanding that. We kind of just focus on uh, objective uh, data like laboratory values and blood sugars and blood pressures, which are all very important. But that's got to be put into the context of the holistic picture of patient belief systems, attitudes, and behaviors. And I think we do a better job at looking at these things in public health and with qualitative research. But we need to blend the quantitative data and the qualitative understanding of what the patient is experiencing. There are, are so many elements that contribute to the health disparities that people who are Indigenous Americans deal with. There, of course, is poverty. There is education. There is access to healthy foods. And I know that that's been one of your personal missions is, is really to raise awareness about the importance of nutrition and and really what some of the blockades are in the way of many American Indian communities having access to healthy foods. This is a huge issue and a huge crisis for so many communities, isn't it? It really is. And I was very fortunate just a few months ago, I served on the White House Task Force on Food, Nutrition, and Health. And we did create a document with multiple recommendations at the policy level to try to improve outcomes because it's a, an issue for indigenous populations, but really is a national challenge in terms of making sure that we have access to healthy food across the board. So um, several things to think about with indigenous populations. Of course, historically, we only had uh, healthy foods, right? Yeah. We had whole foods, we had organic foods, and our food systems were much more holistic and included healthier options. And of course, now we have a lot more processed foods. And when people were uh, denied access to their homelands and traditional food systems, and you know, we lost the buffalo herds in the Northern Plains, and then in the desert Southwest, so many of the rivers were dammed to create reservoirs, we lost our food system uh, completely. And then there were federal government sponsored food programs that led to access to very unhealthy foods. So the commodity food programs out of USDA or the uh, food distribution program on Indian reservations includes all kinds of unhealthy foods, but then that became the only food we had access to. And then even the, the WIC programs, the women, infants, and children, they, they've done a much better job in recent years of promoting breastfeeding. But when I was a full-time clinician, you know, going back 20 to 30 years, the, the WIC programs are basically baby formula distribution centers and just handing out baby formula. And the, we know that as a population, formula-fed infants grow up to have higher rates of diabetes than breastfed infants. So we had policy basis, historical basis, and uh, the outcomes of colonization that directly lead to things like type 2 diabetes and other obesity-related chronic disease.
I'm talking with Dr. Donald Warren. He is the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health, and he'll be speaking in Iowa City tomorrow. And when you talk about how the U.S. government and the relationship with all these government programs has exacerbated many of the health problems on reservations and in indigenous communities over time. I know there are a number of of really wonderful and innovative programs in indigenous communities in an effort to reclaim traditional foods here in Iowa. The Meskwaki Food Sovereignty Initiative is, is one of those programs. But the forces that continue to create this problem are are still very present. I I know that in um, you've used your own hometown as an example where there's a restaurant that sells a lot of, I'm sure, incredibly delicious fried food. Across the street is a gas station, and that is the only grocery store in town. And and what, it's at least 30 miles to get to another grocery store? Actually, it's about 90 miles. 90 miles. All right. (laughs) So even even harder. Yeah, so it's it's really unfortunate that when people living in these communities, if they want to have a healthier diet, there are just so many barriers put in the way. And it's just remarkable that we don't invest resources in promoting more access to healthier food choices. And, you know, I'd mentioned a couple of uh, programs like the Commodity Food Program as well as WIC but also the school lunch and school breakfast programs historically have created challenges. So it's just, it's a a comprehensive and ubiquitous challenge that we need to have better access to food for early childhood development and really promote simple things like breastfeeding that really needs to be promoted. Um, And then also promoting access to healthier food in the schools and in the community. So it does need a more comprehensive approach. One of the challenges we face is that people have become accustomed to processed foods. And I think uh, food preferences and palates have changed over generations just because of the access to uh, to processed foods that are just really unnatural. And, you know, when I go home for ceremonies or events, you know, there's an expe- expectation that when there's a, a, a feast, there'll be things like fry bread, you know, that we consider fry bread to be a traditional food now, but it's not actually traditional indigenous food. It's basically people doing the best that they can with their commodity foods, things like flour, sugar, uh, vegetable shortening. And that's really the origin of, of fry bread is through the commodity food program. So so when people try to say it's traditional, I say, well, it's, it's not traditional American Indian food, it's traditional USDA food, but yeah. it's now become acculturated. So, so we really, I mean, it's just such a huge problem and big challenge because it's not just creating better access, but how do we ensure that people uh, can try the, the, the traditional foods and the healthier choices and then make those, those choices. So in one of the communities where I've worked in Minnesota, they did something that I thought was just brilliant. They had a new wellness center that was frequented by uh, the kids because they had the basketball courts and a lot of fun things for them to do. But the vending machines, the the kids would choose the high sugar content drinks and the unhealthy snacks. So what they did 
is they made the bottled water 25 cents and the sodas were a dollar 25 and then they saw water consumption go way up nice. so yeah they're simple relatively simple things we can do from a policy and programmatic perspective to encourage healthier choices so we need access, but we also need to have good strategies to encourage better choices. And and speaking of access, I mean, access to healthcare has often been a problem for especially these these rural, um, really remote communities. But another deep part of the problem is deep distrust of the U.S. healthcare system, which, with all the things that we have talked about, is completely understandable. Yes, and particularly where I'm from, you know, th- these are just really deep rooted challenges that are very uh, emotionally um, charged issues. So for example, the Indian Health Service, which is the federal agency responsible for providing health services, a a number of challenges there. So uh, I think as a starting point, it's important for the listeners to understand that uh, as American Indians, we're the only population in the U.S. that's born with a legal right to health services. So it's not free healthcare. We actually exchanged vast amounts of land and natural resources for various social services, including housing, education, and healthcare. So that's why there's a Bureau of Indian Affairs, a BIA, and that's why there's an Indian Health Service, an IHS, where people have a treaty right to these services based on exchange of vast amounts of resources and land. So the challenge is that IHS has never been fully funded by Congress. So we've had challenges with adequate staffing and a lot of turnover of providers and then sometimes problematic providers that just get reassigned to new places. And there was a horrible circumstance that included my home community where there was actually a a pedophile who was Mm -hmm. one of the pediatricians and just awful, awful outcomes that led to even suicides among the victims. So just terrible, terrible outcomes. This is one of the IHS doctors. In addition to that, um, you know, there was even forced sterilization of women. If you go back to the 1970s, there was a program where when they would do a delivery, they would do a, a tubal ligation. They would basically have, women would have their tubes tied without even knowing that that had happened. So just even without um, consent. So so yes, there's distrust of the, the health system, but justifiably so. So to overcome this, it really will take a generation of improved outcomes. We need the resources to hire um, more providers and ideally investing in the education of our own people because we need our own people to go into medicine, nursing, and healthcare administration and other fields that that we really need to invest in workforce development as well. That's got to be part of the long-term solution so we can build trust between the communities and the healthcare system. We're going to take another short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I am talking to Dr. Donald Warren. He created the first indigenous health-focused Master of Public Health and PhD programs in the U.S. or Canada at the University of North Dakota. Now he's co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health. He will be speaking tomorrow at noon at the University of Iowa as part of the Human Rights Week celebration at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. We will continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, my guest is Dr. Donald Warren. He has dedicated his life to healing people. He's also worked very hard to raise awareness about the enduring health challenges faced by American Indians. He is now co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health. He is a member of the Oglala Lakota Tribe from Pine Ridge, South Dakota. And tomorrow at noon, he will be delivering the Martin Luther King Jr. Distinguished Lecture as part of the 2023 Human Rights Week celebration at the University. University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. And Dr. Warren, so far we have focused a lot on some of the the really incredibly embedded inequities in the lives of American Indians in the United States. You, as a doctor, you have worked hard to help individuals, but you have a much greater vision for empowering others and creating a healthier system for the future. First, I want to ask you, was there a moment where you realized, I don't want to just work in an office, I don't want to help people just one-on-one, there need to be so many more people with my skills to, to really make an impact? Was there a moment where you decided that you wanted to focus your energy on and creating that world? Absolutely. And I think, uh, honestly, I went into medicine a little bit naively. I thought that I would have a big impact on American Indian health as a primary care doctor. And what I learned very quickly is that you can have an impact on one patient at a time, which is really meaningful and valuable. But the the sources of our health inequities are more systemic and policy-based than they are uh, focused on the one-on-one patient care. And the vast majority of the things that I was dealing with in the clinic and in the hospital were preventable, things like type 2 diabetes and uh, addiction and some forms of cancer uh, certainly are preventable, but we're not going to prevent diabetes in the hospital. It really has to be done in the communities. So that's when I changed my focus from medicine to public health and health policy. And in working in these arenas, we can see systemic changes that can have much longer lasting ripple effects. And I've been working in that space now for a few decades. But in the last couple of uh, decades, what I've really focused on as well is workforce development. Because what I see is that in our current system of medical education and other health professions education, there really is a lack of understanding of the real issues that Indigenous people face. And I think, you know, when we look at our disparities and inequities, one that's very stark from my perspective is that if you look at all of the medical schools in the U.S. and Canada, all of them, we have zero American Indian or Uh, First Nations, Indigenous peoples who are the dean of a medical school. Mm -hmm. Isn't that remarkable? Here it is, 2023, zero deans. So I think that the lack of diversity among health professions, education, leadership means that quite often we don't know what we don't know as academic institutions. So without that lived experience and without a genuine understanding of these challenges, we're not going to create the type of curricula that are needed to adequately address our challenges. So so I have developed some programs, including what you had mentioned, the Indigenous Health-focused MPH program or Master of Public Health, as well as an Indigenous Health PhD program. And at Johns Hopkins, we're now in process of developing a DRPH, a doctorate in public health with a focus in Indigenous health. But what we really need as we move forward long term is we we really need an indigenous school of healing arts and sciences. 
because the current curricula are inadequate to address our needs and the current strategies to build the workforce are inadequate. I think the, the empirical data just prove this. We, we have a shortage of American Indian and Alaska Native healthcare providers. And quite often the, the schools and the systems are just not adequately developed to meet cultural needs or to meet the potential students where they are. And we, we have a lot of our young, intelligent people coming from under-resourced schools, so they don't have the same preparation to do well in the sciences and on the medical college admissions test. But we assume that everyone had the same starting point, so we judge everybody by these objective measures that are not adequate. So I, I see the potential for more of our own people going into healthcare and to addressing the issues that we're facing from a more culturally uh, uh appropriate perspective, but we really need our own form of education. And there is a model for this. If you look at the HBCUs, the Historically Black Colleges and Universities, they actually have five medical schools in their network. If you look at the tribal colleges, we have zero, no medical school that's focused on indigenous peoples. So in the next 15 years or so that I, I'm hopefully going to be able to continue working, that's one of our long-term goals is that we really need an indigenous school of healing arts and sciences that can then blend the best of modern medicine with the best of culturally based healing practices. Tell me a little bit more about the program that you helped to found in North Dakota. It drew students from indigenous communities all over the country and in Canada, right? Yeah, it's really wonderful. If we look at our uh, MPH and particularly the indigenous health PhD program, we have uh, several students from Canada, students from all across the United States. And then we have uh, some native Hawaiian students. And in this uh, current first year class, we also have an uh, American Samoan student as well. So it's been very successful. We actually have 50 students in the first three cohorts of the PhD program. And later this year, we'll have our first group of uh, graduates from the PhD program. And the, the focus is on blending research and evaluation and policy disciplines with an indigenous lens and also an indigenous focus on health inequities, but also indigenous methodologies. So in truth, as indigenous peoples, we've been doing research and evaluation and policy development for millennia. We just had different terminology and different methodology. So we're basically blending those worlds together. And the students are really thriving. So uh, while I was at UND, I was also director of what's called InMed, or Indians into Medicine, and that's a medical training program. So I, I looked at our InMed program as the clinical training component of what we do, and the Indigenous Health PhD program is the research uh, component and research training of what we do. And we, we need both, because in my own experience in research, when we have researchers and, again, academic institutions that don't have the lived experience of being indigenous, quite often we're not even asking the right research questions. And there's many examples of, of uh, research that's been conducted that was really the, the wrong question to begin with. So we have to have people with lived experience, but also very good training in research methods. I'm talking with Dr. Donald Warren. He is co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health and in Iowa this week. Dr. Warren, I, I, 
I'm sure that you interacted with many of those students uh, in your time in North Dakota. And I'm thinking back to when you talked about thinking about becoming a doctor and seeking out and finding one American Indian physician who you could talk to, who, who you know, made you feel like what you could accomplish was possible. And then the small cohort of indigenous people that you went to school with at Stanford, how powerful it must be for indigenous students to have a, a community with so many people coming together and, and you know, with a, with a shared goal. Do you have observations from, from what you heard from students about what that means and meant to them? Yes, and, and one of the, the strategies that is most effective, if you want Indigenous students, you need to have Indigenous faculty. And in many ways, it sounds like I'm saying one plus one equals two, but it's <laughs> remarkable how there's been pushback in many academic se sectors, and they just don't make it a priority to hire Indigenous people on faculty. And having lived experience and having role models is just so vitally important so one of the things I'm very proud of at UND, and I'm still staying on, I'm 20% time still with okay. UND to, to help with transitioning the programs, but we have 10 Indigenous scholars on faculty now. So it's not just me. It's really wonderful to have this group. And the the students really appreciate it. They, For example, in the first year of the MPH program, they'll take four classes and every professor is Indigenous. Isn't that remarkable? That's to, amazing. To have every professor be an indigenous scholar. So that's what really needs to happen, that if, if academic institutions are serious about increasing the numbers of students who are indigenous, then you need to start with increasing the number of faculty members who are indigenous. And it really is a synergistic process because the more faculty generates more students, the more indigenous students generates more interest among faculty to, to join us. So it really is a complementary approach. And yes, the, the students absolutely love it. And of our 50 PhD students, 45 of them are Indigenous peoples themselves. <clears throat> so it's also important to acknowledge we need non-Indigenous allies. So we do have quite a few very good non-Indigenous applicants to our PhD program. And I, I want it to be that way. We need to promote awareness, not just among Indigenous peoples, but among non-Indigenous people who want to be allies and want to work in this space in a genuine manner. I was going to ask you about that because, of course, cultural appropriation has been horrible in, in so many ways with, you know, a, a largely white population in the United States being enraptured with some portions of Indigenous cultures and co-opting those those portions of culture. I can imagine that there would be uh, people with different backgrounds who may feel like this is not the place for them, but you're saying it can be. Yeah, absolutely. And it needs to be. And uh, so when I look at the, the challenges that we face, we certainly need to build our own workforce from within Indigenous communities. But in truth, we'll never have enough people from just our, our own populations because it's a relatively small population. It's about less than 2% of the U.S. population. So we need to have genuine allies. And we have a lot of very good allies. And even on faculty at UND and at Johns Hopkins, we have uh, faculty members who are not members of indigenous communities, but they are really good at what they do and they are genuinely connected to the students in a meaningful way. So I think it's just a wonderful uh, approach where we're working with 
indigenous and non-indigenous students and faculty around the common cause of addressing the inequities and promoting more resilience and better outcomes. You are relatively new at Johns Hopkins as the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health. Tell me about your vision. And and I can imagine leaving, or at least gradually leaving, uh, North Dakota has been uh, challenging for you as well, having created that program. But tell me about the vision for what's being done at Johns Hopkins. Well, it's for a long time, it's been the Center for American Indian Health. And it started uh, in the early 90s. It's been in place for over 30 years And it's really based on work that started in the 1980s. There was a tribe in the Southwest that was uh, suffering through a lot of infant and early childhood deaths due to dehydration from infectious diarrhea. And the challenge with with the remote rural communities is that you don't always have access to uh, pediatric intensive care or easy access to IV fluids. So there was a, a team of providers from Johns Hopkins who worked with the community to develop an oral rehydration solution. So basically a, a solution that could be, uh, that the, the child could drink to get rehydrated. So that eventually became Pedialyte. I'm sure you've heard of Pedialyte, yes. but that's actually the origin of it, is uh, that work. Wow. And they uh, then created this Center for American Indian Health that was focused initially on infectious disease. But over the last three decades, it's now expanded into mental health as well as chronic uh, uh, conditions. So it's a much more comprehensive program. There's over 300 employees at this center, and our people are are based all over the country, of course, in Baltimore, but also in Minnesota, Arizona, um, and New Mexico and other parts of the country as well. So I was brought on to also increase the areas of focus into both traditional medicine and health policy. So I'm in process of hiring a couple more faculty members, one to focus on building out our traditional indigenous medicine area of work, and another to help with the health policy arenas. So a couple things that we're doing, we'll be developing a textbook in American Indian and Alaska Native health law and policy, because there's so much unique nuance to American Indian health. And then also we'll be developing a textbook and documentary on traditional indigenous medicine that will engage uh, many of my friends and colleagues from around the world. So I have indigenous health colleagues in Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, Alaska, across Canada, and in Norway, actually. Uh, so we could look at traditional approaches to health from a, from a cultural perspective. In addition, we'll develop an international indigenous health database and a postdoc training opportunity in Indigenous health, where the postdoc students can then work with Indigenous populations across the globe. So very exciting opportunities that are evolving as we speak. And sources for for wisdom that can help, I would suspect, every human being on Earth. And you mentioned already that the Indigenous population in the United States is less than 2%. Here in Iowa, it's less than that. To me, it seems obvious that this is something we should all care about. But I'm sure that there are people who think, well, this doesn't really affect me. Why should we all care about this? Well, I would like to think that we have a a global community of of people and a a worldwide community of um, human beings who care about one another. And when we think about the world population, the indigenous peoples are the original inhabitants of various parts of the earth. 
And I think that it's important for people in the Dakotas and in Iowa to recognize that even if their families have been here for five or six generations, that the American Indian population has been here for a thousand generations. And that this is the original homelands of many indigenous peoples. And we're still here. We're just now trying to recover from the negative outcomes of colonization and marginalization and reservations and all of these other challenges. But we really need to work in collaboration and look at, you know, as a human race, we really should care for one another and we should want every population to be as healthy as possible. But we should also respect and revere the diversity of cultures that we come from. So from my perspective as, you know, one of the original inhabitants of this region, we should all be concerned about the health of one another and we should all really focus on making sure that every person living in our country can have a fulfilling and healthy life as we move forward. Dr. Donald Warren, thank you so much. Very happy to be here and thank you for having me. Dr. Donald Warren, he created the first Indigenous Health-focused Master of Public Health and PhD programs in the U.S. or Canada at the University of North Dakota. He'll be speaking in Iowa City tomorrow as part of the 2023 Human Rights Week celebration at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. He'll be speaking at noon. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.